We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Conversation about history. I had one at my home this week. Um, my daughter's in ninth grade, so we're starting on all the high school course studies. So we're trying to manage classes, and they do it on a block schedule, so they have four classes till Christmas, and then four more classes in the spring. So uh, it's kind of like the way colleges would do it, more on a semester-type system. And one of the classes that she has to take, that she's taking um, this particular semester, is it's a split. The first half is geography, and the second half is Mississippi history. So we were having the conversation the other night. She was studying some geography terms and talking about going into Mississippi history and so we kind of had that discussion about why those things are important, why you need to know those things. And so she says, did you ever have to take that? And I don't know if any of you, and this is weird, but I can actually, um, I, can't, I may not remember that I'm supposed to get milk when I go to the grocery store. Um, I sometimes forget names. I forget things I'm supposed to do during a day. But I could tell you, Every teacher I had, I could walk you to every class that I ever went to. I could tell you my schedule each year of high school. I don't know, I don't know why. Weird. I can actually tell you where I sat in all of my classes. Um, and so she asked me, she said, did you ever have to take that? I said, oh yeah, Mississippi history. That's Mr. Collins, ninth grade, LaRoanne High School, last room on the left. Um, and she said, you remember, do you remember anything about that? And I said, well, I remember Mr. Collins. He was about he was about six six, and let's just say um, somehow, and I don't know how I would have ended up like in, in a class like this, but this class was horrible. I mean, I can't imagine anybody you know as great as I behaved that I would have ever ended up in a behavioral problem class. But this was like I mean, this was like dangerous minds. I mean, this class was it was it was rough. Like it was a rough class. But this man was in his 60s, he was about 6'6", six, six, and he had a, he had a ruler, um, and he had written on, and I'm talking about a yardstick, not a yardstick, and he wrapped the bottom of it in duct tape, and he wrote the enforcer on, on, on it, and he held it, he held it by the bottom, and if, if somebody was talking while he was talking, he would just take that ruler and slam it, just pop it on the top of the desk. Bam! And he'd, and he'd say, listen to me. You are nothing but a GI. And you'd look up and you'd say, what is that, Mr. Collins? That's a general idiot. You are a GI. General idiot. And then he called us moondogs. And I still don't know what that means. I tried to Google it. We were nothing but moon dogs and GIs, and then he would ask us how we wanted our eggs. He said, he'd say, LeBlanc, how do you want your eggs? And what that meant was, you're going to be here for detention in the morning because our detentions were before school, not after school. So I don't know that I got everything out of Mississippi history that I was supposed to, but my own personal history, looking back on it, it made a very big impression on me. So I'm just saying that to warn you. Um, I do have, back behind that yellow thing, I made my own enforcer. Um, and if you're not listening tonight, I'm just going to start slapping the tables, all right? So I, I'm, I'm watching you tonight. You've got to, you've got, it's hard to especially listen to history at night 
after a long day and after we just fed you hamburgers. So I understand the challenge before you and the challenge that's before me. But we're going to jump into tonight as we're taking these 200 years at a time. Tonight we're looking at the 5th and 6th centuries of church history. So some of this we're going to move through quickly because I want to spend a little bit more time on some certain sections that we're looking at tonight. In the 5th century... Um, barbarian tra tribes ransacked the city of Rome two different times. One of the responses was to blame the Christians, and so Augustine, we talked about him last week, Augustine responded in his book, The City of God, by arguing that the only lasting city or kingdom is the one God is building in Jesus Christ in the church. So he called believers to see their commitment to Christ in His kingdom rather than earthly powers. Um, if we don't study history, we're going to repeat it. And we're going to repeat it anyway, but at least if we repeat it and we know something about it, we'll know how to respond. I read about this this week with so much interest, and here's why. I think the church in America and the church in Rome had so many similarities that it's scary. And one of those similarities, if we're not careful, and I would tell you that I think the church made this mistake in the 1980s. In the 1980s, and any of you remember the religious right? The moral majority. Do you remember, anybody remember those terms? Big political terms. And what happened was, people would take their Christianity and tie it so closely to their politics that you couldn't separate their Christianity and their politics. So what became a, was a Christian movement became a political movement, and then all of a sudden, your Christianity and your patriotism were tied very close together. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being patriotic. But there is something wrong when we don't understand the allegiance that we have is first to the kingdom of God and not to the United States of America. Now, the reason we need to make that distinction is because in a growing, progressive, and secular culture, what we live in, we're going to be called in this generation, and especially our children and grandchildren, to look at the allegiances that we have and ask first and foremost, when we think about how we submit to the authorities, the first authority is God, and Augustine, back all the way in the 5th century, started pointing that out. Also during the 5th century, a British monk named Pelagius began to teach that people could change their lives and be saved by their own efforts. It's known as Pelagianism. As he began to study Augustine, he rebuked the teaching of Augustine that people were saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Those are when we later get to the Reformation and study the solas, what he, he bucked against that and taught that man could accomplish the divine will by his own choice. So what Pelagius began to teach was nothing different than the exact things that are taught today anytime a works-based faith is preached. That you can make the right decisions, that you can make the right choices, that you can be moral on your own. So to be able to teach this, he taught that man's choices are not affected by the fall in Genesis 3, so there was no original sin. In other words, 
Every one of us are born with choices that are in front of us. And the only reason that sin happens is because you individually made those choices. And you could have, if you would have been stronger, if you would have been better, you could have made choices not to have sinned. Well, if you understand anything about the core of the Gospel, that is antithetical to the very premise of the Gospel. The first premise of the Gospel is that you were born in original sin. You chose to sin, but the reason you chose to sin was because you couldn't help but choose to sin. You sinned because you are a sinner. You were born in sin. sin. You were conceived in your mother's womb in sin. So he teaches this, and so grace for Pelagius was only the instruction God has provided. So because God told you what to do, that's His grace. Whether or not you do it or not is only on you. It didn't remove sin or it didn't, and it didn't give the power for righteous living. So when He talked about predestination, that was only the foreknowledge of God seeing the quality of righteous lives that men choose to lead. Now, if, you're, if you've been waiting for that point that we're walking through history where we might get a little controversial, then welcome to our study tonight. We are not, I have not been shy about pointing out to you cults that are in our day that are affected by ancient theology, ancient heresy, ancient unorthodoxy. We still have, even in mainline supposedly evangelical Christian denominations, Pelagianism is alive and well. It's alive and well. Let me tell you first how it's alive and well. When you study the prosperity gospel, that is Pelagianism on steroids. How do you figure that? You say you think Joel Osteen's Pelagian? I absolutely think Joel Osteen's a Pelagian. And here's why. Because the core of his teaching is You can become a better you. You can have your best life now. You can make the right choices. Your destiny is in your heart. Your success is on you. It's all about your heart. Find the strength inside inside yourself. All the while he's smiling and people are licking it up like it's original and it's as ancient as Pelagianism. It is a rebranding of Pelagianism. But even furthermore, even in some of the mainline denominations, Um, When we talk about predestination, that's a difficult subject for a lot of people. Election, predestination, what does that mean? I want to start off tonight by telling you what it cannot mean if you believe the Gospel. It cannot mean what Pelagius thought it meant. Pelagius taught that all predestination was, was God's foreknowledge, which means He looked down through the corridors of time. And who would like to be our example tonight? Fantastic. What did I hear? Did I hear a testimony? Absolutely. Dee Dee, we're going to use you. Yes. I'm, I'm coming, coming over here. So he looks down through the corridors of time and he sees how righteous and wonderful and the good choices that Dee Dee is going to make with her life. So because he sees how righteous and wonderful and the good choices that he is going to that she has made. He then in turn chooses her because of how good she has done. 
Now, I challenge you, there are Baptists that believe this. Southern Baptists that preach this. Just about the entire Methodist denomination, that's how they would explain predestination. That God looked through the corridor of time to put it simply, saw that you were going to choose Him, and so because you were going to choose Him, He chose you. Why can that not be what it is? Exactly. If I'm saved by grace, through faith, this not of myself, so that no man can boast, well, he can't look through the corridors of time and see how great I am because there's nothing good in me. I was born in sin. I commit sin because I was born in sin. So, people say, well, did you choose God or did God choose you? Both. But, I would have never chosen God had God not chosen me. The only reason I love God is because He first loved me. In fact, the Bible doesn't just say you made some mistakes. The Bible says you hated God. The Bible says you were a God-hater. That you were turned against the ways of God. So Pelagianism in its various forms is alive and well. Now I can tell you if you walk up to somebody and say, you Pelagian they're not going to have a clue what you're talking about. But understanding that this is not new is really, really important. Because this denial of the very heart of the Gospel is what caused Augustine to start expounding the great Pauline doctrines of grace. Know these. Original sin. Total depravity. Men's, man's inability to save himself. The efficacy of Christ's death on the cross. And the necessity of faith. The reason that heresy is so important to study is because every time throughout history, heresy has raised its head when unfaithful, unbiblical teaching has risen up in the church. It has caused men of God to refute that with the Word of God. And when that happens, the church gets stronger. And I would believe that the way Augustine refuted Pelagius is one of the foundational times in which expository preaching was born. Because he refuted error with Scripture. He refuted error by taking him through Paul's letters. It's one of the reasons why I believe the greatest theological treatise ever written was the book of Romans. And if you study Romans, it will put to bed almost all of what we're talking about as far as these heresies that have come up. Thankfully, Augustine won the day and Pelagianism was condemned in 431 at the Council of Ephesus. The 5th century also produced the ministry of St. Patrick of Ireland. I, I've never, I hadn't spent a lot of time in my life studying St. Patrick. Because for my whole life, all St. Patrick has been is what? It was a day. You didn't wear green. Somebody pinched you and ran around. Clover, talking about four-leaf clovers and what are those little things called? Not munchkins. What? Um, leprechauns. There you go. Not munchkins. <laughs> I was thinking about Willy Wonka. What are they called in the uh, Oompa Loompas? That's yeah. That's what I was, I was thinking of. But but yeah, leprechauns and and all of this mess and and so and then they'd have parades that turned into drunken foolishness. So, St. Patrick's Day, I kind of never really paid a whole lot of attention. And then you begin to 
to understand who this man really was, when he was 16, he was kidnapped from his home. He was taken to Ireland and sold into slavery. He got saved while enslaved in Ireland. In his mid-twenties, he escapes from slavery and comes back to his home in Britain where he becomes a monk. While he is there, he feels called to return to Ireland, the place that he was in slavery, and he made his way back there in his early forties, and the verse that motivated him was Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Check out how cool this is. For Patrick of Ireland, he was actually Patrick of Britain, the reason that he wanted to go back to Ireland is because in his day, Ireland was the end of the world. They didn't know about people being spread out. To them, that was the foremost reaches. That was the barbarian people. So for him, he saw his calling to go to the furthest place that he could go to preach and spread the Gospel. And he does that. And throughout his ministry, he planted 365 churches and won 120,000 converts to Christ. I'll be honest. I studied that and I thought, what a shame it is. That the only homage I've ever given this guy is if I happened to check my phone on St. Patrick's Day and remembered it, maybe trying to put something green on. And yet, you study his life and recognize that this man was no joke. This was a guy who in church history is a hero because the way even now that missions are done, he didn't have a pattern. It wasn't that somebody said, here's how you ought to do this. He read his Bible and thought, well, I guess I need to go and I need to preach. And he started churches. And part much of how we do missions today, it comes from the way that Patrick did it all the way back in the 5th century. Then in the 6th century, we saw a renewal of the Roman Empire. Remember, it had been sacked, ransacked two different times in the 5th century. In the 6th century, we see a renewal under the reign of Justinian I. He builds churches. He defends orthodoxy. And during this time, monasticism flourished. Um, you may have heard of Benedict or the Benedictine order or Benedictine monks the leadership of Benedict, who withdrew to live as a hermit, but people were attracted to that monastic life, and so they followed him there. Also during this time, Scotland um, was viewed as barbaric, uncivilized, warring tribes were there, and it was in desperate need of the gospel. Two individuals that are hard to even find much out about them other than this little bit that we know, Two men by the name of Ninian and Columba began a brand new way of evangelizing because they went places where no Christians were and they planted cell groups of Christians in these places and left them there to live. So that by their lives and their witness, other people in those areas would come to know Christ and churches would be planted because Christians voluntarily went to be places where the entire area was lost. Do you know how really now what we look at, we call them unreached people groups. It's groups of people that there is 
not a Christian presence there. And we're trying to reach those unreached people groups. How do you do that? It's amazing. It's like we didn't study history. All the way back in the 6th century, we have two guys, Ninian and Columba, who gave us a pretty great outline for how that ought to be done. But even in Southern Baptist history, we didn't really figure, figure that out. Do you know for the longest time in Southern Baptist life, we spent a ton of money on missions and did it crazy? And here's what I mean. Somebody would say they wanted to be a missionary. So you'd send them down to Central or South America. And you'd send a man down there, whether or not he could speak the language or not, you'd send him with some suits, and then you'd construct a little white church house in the middle of the jungle, and you'd start setting up trying to do church there like you did church back home, but none of the customs or the cultures of people understood anything about it, and they wondered why people weren't flocking to the churches and said that they must have been just because of their heathen ways. Well, eventually we realized that if you really want to reach people, you've got to meet them where they are. You need to speak their language, understand their customs, and you don't come in and say, hey, this is who we are and how we do it, so y'all have got to learn to do it exactly like we do it. No, you come in and you learn who they are and you communicate with them in a way that is relevant. And not only do you have to exegete Scripture, but you have to exegete the culture so that when you're there with them, you're able to say, we are becoming part of who you are. We are investing our lives here. It is amazing that throughout history, even as early as the 6th century, people were figuring out that that's the way that missions should be done. And yet we still, even today, don't often get that even in our evangelistic strategies. You say, well, you're talking about going to the ends of the world. Let's, let's bring it home a little bit. How often in the South is this our attitude? We got a great church. Now, maybe this wouldn't happen here, especially the next line, but you've heard something like this before. We've got a great church. We've got a great preacher. If they want to get saved, they ought to come on down there. In fact, I told people, if they want to get saved, they ought to come Sunday. Well, I'm great with you inviting people to church. But if somebody's lost in their sin and cares nothing about God or the things of God, they're not coming here. So really, you're a missionary. And you ought to do it like Ninian and Columba. You say, what does that mean? I need to move? No, it means you need to meet people where they are. And we need to get to know them on their terms. And we need to bring the Gospel to them. And then by doing it, then we've earned the right to say, I'd love to have you at church on Sunday. They'll probably accept that invitation at that point. But we have to start by doing missions in a way that we meet people where they are. I hope that tonight, and I guess... If it's not true, it's because I, I failed you somehow in walking you through this tonight. But more so than any of the centuries that we have even studied thus far, the information that we have covered rapidly tonight has been, for me, it has leapt off the page how disturbing it is that history continues to repeat itself. That heresies continue to repeat themselves. That errors continue to repeat themselves. So one of the things I'm praying for is that the Lord would teach us enough about history that we would look back and say, Lord, help us to keep from making some of the mistakes that the church has made in the past, but God, also help us to learn from some of the heroes of the faith and to live our lives in such a way that we would make the kind of impact that some of these people have made. 
you're doing that in your places of work and with the way you're living your lives, and I am so so thankful for that. Um, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for what God's doing here. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm try to be just as careful about as I can be um, is we want God to be able to work in your life, and certainly, and that happens in private. But sometimes I just need to report to you that things are happening in people's lives every week that we aren't even aware of. God is moving in people, and, and, and sometimes I'm made privy to some of that, but it's only a small fraction. But this week, man, it was incredible. Just to show you from Sunday, if you don't think that God moves in, a, in an incredible way, just from this Sunday, we're walking through Thessalonians. We had a sermon that was tough to preach, and I'm sure it was tough to listen to. Had a senior adult couple that was living together that got married Monday. Had a teenager contact me Sunday night. Brother Larry, I've been living in sin and I've been looking at porn and I'm sorry. And I want to apologize to you and I want to apologize to God and I don't want to do that anymore. I'm seeing God do things and not only bringing people to Jesus, but seeing people repent of sin in their life and turn in control of their life over to Jesus. We're seeing some things that are absolutely signs of revival. Signs of revival. Revival is certainly people getting saved, and that's happening. But revival is also the church falling in love with Jesus. And you can't fall in love with Jesus without repenting of sin. And I am so thankful to see what God has been doing in and through the power of His Word and through what God's doing in your lives and how you're ministering to people and how people are. It's just been absolutely so incredible just to witness and to experience and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, I, I'm thankful. Um, I'm thankful for people like the con another conversation I had this week. guy shared with me that the Lord had given him victory over an addiction from porn. But until Sunday, he had hidden in the shadows with that. Didn't want anybody to know that. But he was tired of the devil just holding it as guilt over him even though he had gotten over it. And from now on, he began to see his life as there are some young men that need to hear my story and need to hear what God delivered me from because they're struggling and I know they're struggling. But I want to take this and use it instead of letting Satan just have that part of my life anymore. I want to kick him in the teeth and say, yeah, you really did... You really did do some damage in my life, but you're not going to do the damage anymore and I'm going to take it and I want to pay it forward and I want to use that as a testimony of the grace of God. That's what the Word of God does to people when it unleashes its power inside our hearts. And we're a part of that. So, revival is nothing we create. Revival is simply a way, a tidal wave of the movement of the Holy Spirit of God and He invites us to join Him in what He's already doing. I'm glad that He's invited us to join Him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You for church, for the history and how You have been God and sovereign over every moment of it. Lord, we love You. We praise You. We thank You for who You are. We thank You for what You've done. We thank You for the victories that we see. We thank You for the conviction of sin. We thank You for grace. Lord, we thank You that, Lord, not only do we know that You're the God of our past, but, God, we know that You're the God of our future. And, Lord, when 10,000 times 10,000 years have passed, Lord, we will still 
being enjoying the, enjoying the beauty of Your glory. And for that, we're thankful. Lord, I thank You for a church that loves You. And God, I pray that we would be a church that loves You more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.